When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I spent a lot of time reading about historical figures, about John Lewis, voting rights activists in the South, like Fannie Lou Hamer, you realize that this country, unfortunately, has always had moments like this, and it's been a lot worse. And if they can stand up and say that they're going to keep on fighting and they're going to make sure that people have the right to vote, that people have equal access to education, that Black communities have fair representation then who am I to say that I'm tired and I can't take it? My name is Rotimi Adeyoye, and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you for all of us. Today, we're talking to Rotimi Adeyoye. He's the lead communications advisor at ACLU's Voting Rights Project and opinion columnist for The Daily Beast. He is someone who's very passionate about the future and the landscape of politics. And I, and he came to us actually through a former guest of ours, Sharon Yang, who he's good friends with. And I really enjoyed not just getting to know his career story, which we definitely touch on a lot, but... I in particular really loved all of his personal stories of what it was like growing up in a town where they were one of one of two Nigerian families, but one of five Black American families and hearing how that formed his opinion and, and sort of his, his uh, perspective on how he can contribute and make a difference to the world. What did you think, Raman? Yeah, it's, it's just so interesting because, you know, kid of immigrants like us, the whole public school, the prioritization of education growing up, but not being in a town where everyone looked like you, I could completely relate to it. And then it's, you know, at a young age, like getting involved in one of the Obama campaigns and then taking that and finding opportunities and chance opportunities to work on Capitol Hill for, you know, senators and congressmen and then migrating to the ACLU and now being a columnist for the Daily Beast. Like some of his writing is is really powerful. We'll put some links in the show notes, but it's it's just like, you know, Sharon, it's like you and I are on the periphery of what's happening in this world mm-hmm. politically and kind of the news of the day, the frustrations, but he's in it and he's active in it. And what, how he stays motivated and how he does his work is just gives me hope. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Because I feel like I love having these conversations and I love getting to know people. And I love the fact that the hope for for this show is that we are able to touch people in a way that helps to open up perspectives or to share a different side of things. And Rotimi is, to your point, in it and he's he's impacting it in such a real way. And more than anything, I think elevating 
those types of stories and elevating that type of work, it's double gratifying because it's sort of, you know, it's what he's doing in his career and with his organization, but then also everything he's bringing to it from his own personal perspective. So we hope you enjoy our very wonderful conversation with Rotimi Adeyoye. Rotimi, thanks for coming on the pod. It's great to have you here. No problem. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to an exciting conversation today. Oh, well, set your expectations lower. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well I've, uh, I've been a fan of some of your writing, not just for the ACLU, but in the Daily Beast. Thank you. So I think, you know, some folks might know about your work, but I guess what folks really want to know, dude, is, uh, I don't know, where are you from? Yeah, well, you know, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Pennsylvania, this small town called uh, Doylestown. It's, you know, one of those really movie-like suburban towns I like to describe to people. Like, if you ever saw Friday Night Lights, um, the town one that was- One of the best in, shows in American television. Yes, one of the best shows in American television. But the town is sort of like that. So, you know, you go in, there's the old movie theater, the old, like, gas station, the old like diner that everyone goes to, the pizza shop. So that was the kind of town I grew up in. But like, you know, where where I'm really from is my parents came from uh, Nigeria in the 80s. You know, in the 80s, the middle of 80s, the you know, the 90s, Nigeria was kind of in a very tumultuous time. And there was a really big civil war happened. So my parents left. Uh, my mom left, came here to go to college. And my father was here also uh, at the same time. And then they met and, you know, had me and my uh, younger sister. And then my uh, father, you know, was really, you know, like I think many uh, immigrant parents, school was a big priority for him. And uh, he found Doylestown because he was doing research on schools and realized that Central Bucks was one of the top schools in the state and on the East Coast, public schools. So he sent, uh, decided to move there and then sent us to school there. So I ended up in Doylestown. Wait, so he, he picked where you guys were going to move based on the public school for the kids. Yes. So that was kind wow. of his focus. And, you know, the more people that I talk to that have immigrant families and immigrant backgrounds, it doesn't really sound like a kind of unique concept. Because I remember explaining this to a friend that, you know, had a very different background than me. And they, they were like, you moved somewhere because of schools? Like, what do you mean? Just like, that doesn't doesn't really make sense. But I think- for my parents, education was not only a way out, but it was also a way in. So that was really a big priority is always just having education. Yeah. Were there a lot of other immigrant families in the area then because of the school district? Well, no, <laughs> not <laughs> at all. Um, when I graduated from my high school, Central Bucks West, I was one of, I think, five Black kids in my graduating year. And then the other- Wait, wait, and I got, I got to clear, ask a clarifying question though. Yeah. So of the five black kids, how many were African immigrants versus black American, so to speak? One. And the one, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the one that was her mom and my mom were very good friends and we both sang in the choir. So there was this kind of like, you know, we always joke we found each other because of our background. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, it was- I think there were great things about where I grew up and there's some things I think that weren't so great, but looking back, it wasn't because of the place itself. It was because of the people that I had run into 
And when I was younger, I used to kind of view it as a frustration. But I think as I've grown older and I've learned more, I've kind of viewed it as a learning experience in particularly, um, I guess, how some people respond to differences when they see people that are different than them. Um, I experienced a lot of racism growing up Mm. in high school, particularly in middle school. I think that was really the worst period for me. And it got pretty bad that my mom had to switch me to a different school for a little bit um, because the bullying was just horrendous. You know, kids can be mean, Mm -hmm. but there are just some times where across the line. And my mom, like all parents, are she's worried about my safety and wanted me to be in a place where I felt loved and appreciated. So tried a private school for a little bit, but then I, I really wanted to go back to the school where all my friends were and everyone that I knew because <laughs> I didn't want to run away. And I felt like that was something now that I look back, like kind of, I always pat myself on the back, like, wow, you didn't like, you know, you really wanted to go back to that situation, even though there's so many bullies and so many kids that were so mean. And so, yeah, you know, I think where I grew up was a great place. I, you know, it was really one of the first places that I got involved in politics and a lot of people kind of rallied around me and supported me working on different campaigns. And I found a lot of love in that. But I think there are also tough aspects that I just talked about. So I think there's kind of a duplicit, you know, yeah. two sides to where I grew up. But the older I've gotten, the more I become appreciative of the good and more, um, how do I say, uh, you know, I look at the bad as not, you know, it was tough, but kind of as a growing pain. Yeah, it's funny. I I think about that a lot. Although the irony is, one, your parents made the choice for education, Mm -hmm. but clearly a lot of other immigrant parents didn't because like, you know, my parents made the choice to go to Alabama. Yeah. And, you know, 48th, 49th in education in the country, Mm -hmm. but it was a cost of living thing. We can make our dollars go further to provide a better life so that then the kids can have that good education. Both my parents were teachers. So, you know, we made up for it on the weekends, having two teachers in the house. But definitely I I really feel you on the tough experiences and even the it was a different reason why I left for a couple of years. Like I went to a I went to a boarding school. I think Sharon really? might know that. Wow. Yeah, but it was I at the time I didn't want to leave it. Mm-hmm. I was like, well I'm making it. Even though the situation sucks and I do feel miserable, I'm making it. I'm I'm getting better. And it was that leaving experience. But you know it's funny Time really has a way of giving you perspective. Hmm, Would it have been yeah. great to grow up in a big Indian community, like in Atlanta or Houston mm-hmm. or Huntsville? Sure. But I actually think I'm who I am because I didn't have that. I had the adversity. Exactly. You know, like, it sucked then. It, it totally sucked then. And I, I feel sorry for teenage and adolescent Roman, but mm-hmm. like, I don't think I trade it for the world. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, as a Nigerian, the kind of, pockets of the country where there are a lot of other Nigerians are Texas and Maryland and New Jersey. I didn't grow up in those places, but I had a lot of friends in those places. And I, like you, I've always been like, oh, you know, like maybe it would have been cool if I grew up there. And like, I definitely think it would have been, and I would have been very happier, I think as a, you know, adolescent, and I wouldn't have had a lot of the frustrations I had growing up. But I think, especially now when I look at the job that I have and just the way that I I used to be a community organizer in college in upstate New York. And I remember walking into a room in rural upstate New York and it's- You're okay with the needle drop because yeah. you felt <laughs> yeah. it your whole life. Yeah. 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 And, and a lot of what I remember someone that was in the club with me was like, oh, like 
this is a little uncomfortable. Like these are all these, you know, rural working Americans, a lot of them white. Like, don't you feel a little weird? And I was like, no, and you're this, like, this is a Tuesday, dude. Yeah, this just <laughs> it it really reminded me of my hometown and the people there were so kind and friendly. Yeah. And I remember leaving that situation being like, wow, like for all the problems that I had growing up in the town that I grew up in, there were some positives. And I think it exposed me to people that, you know, were really different than me. And there were people that were different than me that were really kind and great and really just open. And there was kind of a beauty in that. But then sometimes there were mean people and those mean people weren't because of their race. It was more because they're just always mean people anywhere. That's just a part of life. I've kind of grown to learn is that, you know, they're mean people here, the mean people there. You kind of have to find the people that you connect with, you know? Mean people come in all colors and shapes and sizes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the lesson, folks. <laughs> we can go home now. We all have the capacity to we be all, assholes. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rotimi, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Hmm, that's a good question. So I really wanted, I wanted to be a basketball player really badly. Mm, yeah. Um, and then I also, um, I had a fury where I wanted to be a rapper as well, which I always tell people that now. Wait, like, as one of the five black kids in your high school. Yeah. <laughs> like playing to a stereotype, my friend. I know. So I, for me, I think a lot of my childhood was spent trying to figure out how exactly do I fit in the black experience in America. Yeah, And the way that I felt that I could tune into it was through music and through sports because all of the black people that I saw and grew, saw and knew growing up were, you know, black musicians, black sports players. And I kind of was like, okay, well, you know, I like Drake. I like Michael Jordan. I was a big fan of Victor Oladipo, who's a basketball (laughs) player. And he was Nigerian. So I felt this like... There was like, man, we are just the same. Like, yeah, you know, some kind of kinship um, with him. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and like I remember, remember, like I remember when I was a kid, I was like watching ESPN and they played this interview of Victor Oladipo, and he was in like Nigeria, and he was like this African American man, Nigeria, but he was like black. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this guy is like, I'm connecting with him in such a real way, and I think that's why I kind of wanted to do those things, and I remember like. A lot of kids, when I like started making rap music in high school, they were just like, this kid is such a joke. And like, (laughs) looking back, I used to be really frustrated at people that used to say that to me. But now I'm like, wow, like, I mean, I think I may have said the same thing if some kid in my high school was like, I want to be like a professional rapper, like on the off chance that they want to like become successful and they turn into like Jay-Z, then you'd feel really bad. But the chances of that are pretty low. (laughs) Well, so with with that in mind, like, yeah, I'm guessing mom and dad also knew that. So what did they want you to be? So yeah, my parents really didn't support that, of course. You know, I think my parents kind of focus, uh, particularly my mom's And now as I've grown up, I've realized it, I've become more appreciative, is that I think a lot of immigrants, they are worried about, concerned about survival. And when you come to a country that you haven't grown up in, you don't know anyone, or you know very few people, excuse me, even that, it's more about making sure that the kids that you have here can survive and can have a life for themselves. And it's not really about them expressing what they're interested in or expressing hobbies they have. It's more about survival. So my father was an engineer and they really instilled in me that, you know, math and science was the way 
for me to kind of become the person that they wanted me to be. And that was mm-hmm. being an engineer. And, you know, I wasn't the greatest at science um, and I wasn't the greatest at math. So I spent a lot of time kind of spinning my wheels because I wasn't really good at it. And I was very angry at myself for not being good at it. And I think my father left when I was 13, um, which is kind of a, apparently leaving at any time in your life is tough. But I think, especially when you're a 13 year old male, I think you're, man, you're frustrated at the world. You're frustrated at yourself. I found that his absence really kind of was tough for me because I, you know, I lost my father, but at the same time, it allowed me to kind of have some space to think about what I wanted to do and be when I grew up and that his absence allowed me and kind of led to me being in the kind of political world and kind of having that first political experience. How did that, how, how, how was that connection? How did that happen? Well, I think it's, it's kind of because when, so when my dad left, I remember having kind of this moment where I felt very alone. I didn't have a lot of friends. I was kind of on the outskirts of things. Mm -hmm. And I remember this friend that I had um, was like, I am interning for the Obama campaign. And I know you can't get an internship, but it'd just be a good opportunity for us to hang out and we can just like spend time together and talk. And I was like, all right, you know, I'm not doing anything. Like I'm kind of at home a lot. I'm getting in like fights with my mom, my sister all the time. Like because of just everything that's at home, getting bullied at school, kind of everywhere. I feel like this is like a, like a war zone everywhere. I'm fighting people, but I'm really just fighting myself. So I ended up taking the opportunity and being around people that were all connected to a goal that was larger than themselves, I think gave me purpose and allowed me to kind of take some of the frustration that I have and turn it into, it allowed me to turn it into good work and being able to help people. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but I think I was looking to fill the gap that my father had left with being connected to other people. I think that's what politics and community organizing did for me. That's incredible. And I think what I'm hearing is also that you were you were contributing to something that was outside of yourself at that time, right? So it was much bigger and Obama won. So mm-hmm. you were also part of something where it was successful and you were truly making an impact in that way. Yeah. And, you know, it's now that you say that, I, I remember the the night that happened. I remember like all the things that came after it and really feeling like I had been a part of something so history changing at such a young age. Yeah. And that kind of cued to me that I can really do anything. Like if at this young age, I can help get the first black president of the United States elected, then I think I can really do anything. Well, not like an arrogance. It's like, oh, I can like become the next president, but like, oh, I can like any idea that I have that I really think is a good idea, I can run with it. Or any idea that I feel like, you know, that I want to see happen, I can try to make it happen. Um, so I think it gave me agency and let me know that I have personal agency. Remind me again, how old were you uh, during the uh, 08 election? So this was during, um, so during the 08 election, I was super young. I was in the end of elementary school and then I got really involved in the uh, 2012 election. And that's when I really saw, that's when I think really that big yeah. switch went off for me. Yeah. 
That's nuts, man. I, I, not in the not not so people can do math, but just like I remember knocking on doors in Cincinnati. Yeah. And, in 08. And that same kind of electricity when you saw states like Pennsylvania and Ohio and Hamilton County flip. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh, crap. It came down to doors. It you know? did. Like, yeah. It came down to relationships. It came down to, you know, folks like you and, you know, people like me that yeah. just kind of. You know, maybe they didn't see, maybe didn't see the whole story and like could predict the eight, eight, next eight years and then where we are sure. now. <laughs> but I think we we saw something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, but the difference is, you know, a lot of us, and this is where it's just nuts, a lot of us were like self-actualized adults and we're mm-hmm. like, okay, cool, this happened. I, I got to go back to work now. Like mm-hmm. seriously, like let's go to a happy hour. I got to get back to work. I, I got to move to New York. I got to do all these things. But that, it, it sounds like it just set you on a trajectory of the kind of work you chose to get involved with. So how do you, how do you go from that knocking on doors, being a, a student state volunteer to, you know, the kind of, the kind of internships, the kind of, you know, working on like congressional staffs, et cetera. Like, how do you even like get your foot in the door of that sort of work? I think it's now that I've kind of had a lot of, you know, different experiences and I've had a really I'm trying to write a little bit and trying to put together sometimes like the experiences that I've had growing up. And I've realized that it's all because I was surrounded with people that believed in me when at times I didn't believe in myself. And that is what changed my trajectory and really, I think, allowed me to plug to these places. I think there are people like my mom that were always telling me that there's a plan for your life. There's something that you can do. Like, if you just keep trying and keep letting people know that you're interested in this stuff, you know, change is going to, something could happen for you and you're going to be, it's going to, you're going to, you're going to be able to open doors for yourself. I remember when I graduated college and I'd been in DC for two summers before I had two internships in two foreign policy think tanks. I came down to DC. I was like, I want to work on Capitol Hill. And I just couldn't figure it out. I remember like, I'd like go on the Hill and like, one of my friends came with me and she just like watched me like hand out resumes to different offices. And it was like a little embarrassing because they were just like, you know, this is not how you apply. You got to apply online. So then I go home, I apply online when you hear back. I think anyone that has gone through that experience knows it's pretty tough trying to find that job. And then I, you know, I had a single parent, so I wasn't living in DC, like some luxurious life where I could like afford to pay for all these things. I was, you know, really scraping pennies together. I had some money left over from college that I I had and was trying to use that to pay rent. And then out of nowhere, a friend that I'd made in the private school that I went to when I left school for a little bit because of the bullying situation, I saw that he worked for um, Senator Bob Casey from Pennsylvania. And I didn't really think that it would lead to a job. I more just thought I need to just kind of have like a vent session with someone about how it's like tough to find a job on the Hill and maybe they can, you know, like just give me some advice and like hopefully open the door. And so I reached out and we got coffee. And then he said, by the way, there's a job opening coming. I just found out about, do you want to apply? And I was like, yeah, I need a job, man. Like, of course I'm going to apply. And, you know, one thing led to another, then I end up as a staff assistant for the sender for my home state. And that door opened just because of someone that decided that they were so kind enough to grab a coffee with me. You know, if he decided that, oh, you know, I don't want to talk to this kid, like 
I'm not going to do that. And that, you know, wouldn't have happened. And, you know, things could be a lot different. But I think it's just because I am where I am today because of the kindness of people. So I'm kind of coming into this as a daughter of immigrants. And I know for sure my, my own parents were not politically involved in any way. There may have been like, mm-hmm. they were very involved in the community, but it was never from a political perspective. So whether it was the PTA or my dad was involved in, in Chinatown, there are a couple of like family associations. Some might kind of, you know, equate those to gangs. <laughs> I didn't say it. I was, I might've been thinking it, I was, but you said as it. As I was saying that, I was like, it sounds like a gang. It's not really, I mean, Th- things happened in the 80s, but it wasn't. A lot, I mean, lot of envelopes getting passed yeah, around. things like that. Sure. Probably not from my family association, but they okay. were always, like they were involved in ways that were impactful, but they were never, it was just never a political thing. You know, like mm-hmm. there may have been voting, but it was never like elections and that kind of thing. What was your experience? I mean, this was probably a completely new thing to be working in Congress, to be, you know, to be touching to be so close to folks in power in governmental positions. Do you have any early stories about just kind of realizations or new learnings at that point of your career? I think the one big thing I learned, I think one that I'm blessed to be where I am, uh, but I think also too that, you know, some of the things that I learned growing up where it was just, being kind to people, listening to people, having empathy, getting the chance and getting the skills to, you know, just listen and be a good person, frankly, were skills that I learned growing up from my immigrant mother were the skills that translated to being an effective public servant. I remember when I started working in the Senate and I was doing this, I did like a phone call test and the person who hired me said the reason why they hired me was because how kind I was to people that called in on the phone that Mm. had problems and were frustrated. Yeah. And that is something that, you know, if you work for a congressional office, you know, people call in all the time and sometimes people are calling in to sing praises for, you know, person you are working for, but sometimes they're Mm -hmm. calling in to, you know, tell you they hate you. And so you have to figure out- phone calls are probably not good phone calls, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> I'm being actually really kind. Most of them are not great. They're screaming. They are complaining. They are, yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And so growing up, I think something that I always learned, my mom always told me was like, you know, you never know where someone is going to end up. You never know where people are going to be. So always be kind to every person you meet. Always show them the same respect that um, you'd hope to someone to show you. And- that was such a simple lesson. I think that, you know, a lot of people learn as kids and you forget it or you, it sticks with you, but stuck with me. And it ended up kind of being a very important part of why I think I was able to be so good at some of the jobs that I've had. Because I'm a good listener. I spend a lot of time listening to people. And I think empathy is an extremely underrated skill. Um, And it's really important. And it's something I learned as a kid. We've got a good mom. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty good. And now a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. Oh yeah. HHS has still got it. Have they got a cure for for my holiday shopping blues? Sure. I mean, if you count preventing COVID as the cure for the holiday blues. Well, I guess it is that time again to encourage everyone to get their COVID vaccine. 
Oh yeah, vaccines. <laughs> you know, getting my vaccine card updates is like getting my subway card punched. If only it came with a free sandwich. I think it did for a while, uh, at least free donuts. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Sharon, getting your latest updated COVID vaccine is even better with the holidays upon us, especially if it means getting more time to safely catch up with your family. Ah, yes. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron, which means we all have more time to enjoy that home cooking and mom dishes that we've all been craving. Yeah, these latest vaccines are here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. Boom, just did it. Uh, did what? Find the perfect holiday gift for all your family, friends, and favorite <laughs> podcast co-hosts? No, even better, I just scheduled my free vaccine today. Oh, snap. That was pretty easy. Damn straight. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone over the age of five at vaccines.gov. Just be sure to bring candy for everyone five and up. I'm a big fan of candy, for sure. Um, and our kids do like a good candy taster to, to go with all of their vaccines. Kids, anyone five and up deserves a post-vaccine candy treat, uh, <laughs> present company included. It is the holiday season after all. Fair enough. COVID is serious stuff, and we want to make sure all of you are ridiculously thoughtful, stylish, hip, and favorite podcast listeners are getting the latest and greatest COVID vaccines. Especially with those amazing holiday sweaters. <laughs> That's right, Sharon. COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Let's all do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities this holiday season. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find the latest vaccines near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. But now, back to our show. Beyond working with constituents, I'm just genuinely curious because, you know, Sharon and I kind of work in the marketing world. I work mm -hmm. in tech startups now. Like, what is kind of the work culture of Congress? Like, I mean, it's obviously, it's not what you see on C-SPAN and TV and you read and, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. What was that like? I mean, because you spent some time, you know, as a press secretary, you've worked as an assistant. I, I just, what is that like? And then, and then how, more importantly, like in all of our jobs, right? Like, we have to do certain things to kind of fit in, mm -hmm. uh, but then to also use our superpowers. So just being who you are and what you look like and what your name sounds like, like how did you how did you navigate whatever the workplace culture of Congress is? I think, you know, the workplace culture of Congress, it's very fast paced. It's long hours, early mornings, late nights, and everyone there is, I think, expected to bring a level of professionalism and expected to bring a level of just determination, no matter the circumstance. So whether it's 7 a.m. in the morning and your boss has an interview at 8 a.m. for a you know TV station or whether your boss is at a speaking at a hearing and you have to put the memo together late into the night it's expected that every moment of that process um whether it's you know middle of the day or late at night you bring the same level of professionalism and you bring the same level of you know just hard work and determination and grit and i think for me that was something that you know as a as an immigrant kid, um, just working hard and putting your head down and really just making sure that you were doing the best wasn't too difficult. But I think, of course, having a name like uh, Rotimi Adeyoye is not the easiest name to bring into a space like that. And I had some experiences that weren't great and some people that were nice, but I found that a lot of people 
it started a conversation. They'd always be like, where's your name from? And I tell them, you know, my parents came from Nigeria in the eighties, ended up here. They had me. And I always joke that it sounds like, uh, you know, it's a row Timmy. So it's like row your boat and you just say row and add a Timmy on the end. And, you know, everyone would, everyone was, we all have our little systems and jokes. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has their own, you know, all of us with tough names, we got our own little strategy of how to get people to get on the same page. Yeah. But, But I noticed that the more that I approach things, kind of with a little bit of humor. And then also when I approach things, just kind of with understanding, things were a lot easier and it was easier to jump into that new workplace. Well, it's clear that you learned a certain set of skills and comms navigation stuff. You know, a past guest of ours was Andrew Iden, who- Oh, wow. Yeah, who co- he yeah. covered on a comic book that I wanted. Read, yeah. I, and I knew he was in a con- congressional aide to um, the late Congressman Lewis, but it was the- mm-hmm. Understanding the reasons for his departure, why he chose, I want to get out and I want to go apply the skills that I've learned mm-hmm. now to other things, to storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, that's what's genuinely more interesting to me. It's like, you now work with the ACLU, you now write for the Daily Beast, mm-hmm. and you're you're taking the knowledge and the skills that you learned on Capitol Hill. And I mean, how did you make that transition? What was your decision to leave and kind of make the transition to fight the good fight in, in other places and in other ways? Well, I think it's for me, it was if I was going to stay in Congress, I I just knew that I wanted the opportunity to write. I wanted the opportunity to express the ideas that I had and were thinking about ideas on voting, racial justice, civil rights, you know, education, history. There's so many things that I wanted to write about and really, you know, publicly have conversations with people like we're, like we're having now. And I think to be an effective public servant, you can't always do that. Um, so I decided that in order to kind of have that career experience and really just work on writing and kind of have just a different, you know, experience, I, I would need to take a step back, which was tough, but I knew that it was for the right reasons. Um, and I think, you know, now I'm, as a writer and and at the same time working for an organization like the ACLU, I'm able to do what I like to do. And I like to write and kind of do things like this and have different conversations with people. And it was definitely the right decision. And, you know, you know, public service, it, I could happen again. I could be back. I, I don't know. I think now this is definitely, I'm happy where I am and this was the right decision for me. Have you, have you ever felt that, well, I guess that's not really a great question. I was going to say, have you ever felt like you weren't in the right place? But I think about, we were probing a little bit on on like workplace culture. And I think about the term office politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and as someone who's worked for very, very big companies as well as startups, it's a, it's just different, right? Like mm-hmm. as someone who, and, and I'm a woman, and I'm a woman of color, and my challenges are you, probably unique from yours, but you're bringing in, all of the gifts and all of the, all of your life experiences, and also at the same time, probably someone who's educating folks on your perspective, especially in your role, right? Advocating for folks that and, and communities that the people that you're talking to might not exactly have a lot of background mm-hmm. about. So, so you're both you're an advocate for others, but you're also an advocate for yourself. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there have been moments where you've been conflicted a little bit with 
being in a situation where you you felt like you were coming up against any challenges or barriers? Hmm, that's a really um good question. I there have been, and I think the tough thing is, um, and I think you hit on this, is when you're bringing in personal experiences as a person of color and mine as a black man, and you're kind of up against a situation at work that you have definitely personal interest in, or, you know, you personally have perspective on. It's tough to kind of separate that and go with what the organization or office that you're working with is. But, you know, I think that is a reason why I kind of wanted to Looking at public service, I wanted to try something new because I felt like that was a problem that I was interacting with. But I, I was getting a little not frustrated, but I was I kind of decided that I had basically done this enough and I wanted to kind of not have to deal with this problem anymore. And being in a place where you don't have to kind of have those issues. Um, I think has been a lot better for me, but I think, you know, it's a trade-off because, you know, in public service, you're, you have direct connection with people. You're able to kind of, you're able to see the impact that you make on a much larger scale and there's support and there's more attention. So, you know, it's kind of is, it's a trade-off and it's kind of what you're looking for in, in that moment. Yeah, it's kind of like the difference between working at a big company and a startup, right? At a big company, exactly, like Congress or a multinational advertiser or an international advertising agency, oh my God, like the scale of the work that you're doing is so big, but to get anything done, it's like turning the Titanic, you know? But when you go to a startup, like you can talk to the CEO immediately and kind of get your voice out there. The impact might be smaller, but it's a lot of quick wins. I mean, and that that's really where I want to go. Like, you know, since you've been at the Daily Beast and the ACLU, like I just want to read some of your headlines, right? Mm-hmm. For these are pieces that you've written for the, from the Daily Beast. American students barely know anything about reconstruction. Uh, from the Daily Beast, election workers are under attack. We need to fight for them. The ACLU, a radical Supreme Court term in review. The ACLU, the fight for voting rights, how the past informs the current discriminatory landscape. These are not headlines you could have written <laughs> when you were working in Congress. Yeah, and of course. We'll, we'll link to all these articles in the show notes. But they're really powerful pieces that that challenge us and push us. And mm-hmm. especially the one about, I mean, my favorite one is American students barely know anything about Reconstruction, hmm. right? Like, yeah, that's we we need to have a hard conversation about that versus kind of the the Coca Cola Christmas time version of our history. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that piece kind of came around in an interesting way. Um, I think especially during the pandemic, I had a lot of alone time and I spent a lot of time realizing that I didn't know anything. Um, I remember having a conversation with um, one of my friends and we we're like, wow, we, this is happening at the same time. There are a lot of protests in our country around the civil rights, you know, a lot of civil rights issues that are happening, particularly around issues of police misconduct. Yeah. And we, I spent a lot of time reading and I remember that issue coming up and reading this book by Eric Foner about reconstruction. And my, when I kid, when I say my mind really opened it, I felt like my brain was just like, wow, this is why, or it 
could be a reason why we we have so many issues today. The fact that like what's old is new again. Yeah, exactly. That the fact that after the Civil War we did realize that we needed to bring the country together. We need to figure out how to help the new black Americans that were now citizens. And we neglected that. We didn't finish it. Might be why today we're still having some of these tough conversations and dealing with the same problems. And the fact that in schools today, we aren't teaching students about this fundamental time in our history is scary because we are just re- doing the mistakes we've made. Yeah, I I love the last line of that article. Uh, It's not anti-American to grapple with our own history. Yeah, it's it's not because we've been doing it forever. Like the story of this country is grappling with our own history. You know, the Revolutionary War was a war fought because we grappled with our own history. The fact that we were being ruled by a monarch that we were not attached to, and we decided we want to stand up against that. That was grappling with our own history. It's a part of the American experience. It's something we've always done. And to not let our kids participate in that same process is damning, and it's bad for us. How much do you mix the things that you're reading, the things that you're thinking about, versus the narratives, right? Like, I mean, the ACLU, again, and I'm a card-carrying member of the ACLU, the Southern Poverty Law Center, (laughs) Yeah, you know, full disclosure. But, like, there's an agenda. Every organization has an agenda of Mm -hmm. the startup I work at. You know, we have our talking points. Our CEO is going to be on stage talking about things. And it's very clear that informs some of the ACLU writing, right? To to get the donation, to mm-hmm. to drive awareness of what's going on with Roe or Nancy v. Ward, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. How do you balance the things you're thinking and wanting to talk about as an individual versus the things that need to be talked about to, to move the agenda forward? I think it's kind of figuring out what is kind of the most pressing issue in the moment. Yeah. Um, and kind of what are people that are directly impacted on these issues saying? If I read something about, not saying, excuse me, how they're feeling, because if I read something, you know, talks about what's happening in a particular state around a voting law, despite the fact that I may be reading about World War One or reading, I love history, so I'm always reading about different things, I may want to talk about that, but it makes more sense to talk about the pain and the kind of issues that people are feeling on a day-to-day basis that need to be talked about now instead of something that I may just want to express or discuss. Um, So I think it's really about centering my work on how people that are disenfranchised are feeling and what they feel like they need. What's the next kind of deep topic you're, you're getting ready to dive into? I've been really, you know, the election's coming up. And I've heard about that. I've heard, yeah. I've heard about that. <laughs> Obviously, there, there may be an election soon, um, <laughs> count down the days. And I'm really in kind of thinking about voting. I'm thinking about, you know, kind of the story of the, I think, particularly the American experience with voting. There's a prior I wrote, the ACLU, that looks at the different voting laws that have passed. But I think now looking at, how did we get to a point where we literally 10 or 12 years ago, the Voting Rights Act, a pivotal piece of voting rights legislation was something I got that, it. Just like, hey, let's let's discard this thing. We let's don't get need rid it of it and oh decided that we don't need it anymore. And you had presidents like Reagan, Bush that were staunch Republicans, people that, you know, I have a lot of 
uh, disagreement on views with, but they all agreed that voting was a fundamental democratic yeah, they, right. They were all like WTF. <laughs> yeah. And now even they're like, they wouldn't support this. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about that. And yeah, I think I'm really, you know, I'm kind of just reading a lot of different things. I like, I just came back from a very good trip with uh, my girlfriend, went to London and I was particularly interested in the story of the kind of British people after two world wars and after kind of the same experience that happened here. Like, you know, we had these two large moments and kind of how Europe is in this really pivotal world place, given what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. So um, yeah, my mind is a little bit all over the place, um, which is sometimes good and sometimes bad for writing because <laughs> then you kind of can't figure out what to write. But I think I'm really, really in on the voting voting issue. Um, That's something that I've always just been uh, thinking about. I mean, I can ask one more related to that. Like, it's easy for me to get politically involved and become not disenfranchised, but just like, oh my God. But then I can go back to my day job, which isn't in this space, right? Mm -hmm. But you're in it, man. Like, how do you, how do you maintain, maybe not optimism mm -hmm. or hope? Uh, how do you, like, I can go back and like refill the well with my kids or with my day job and then come back to it. But like, you're in it. Like, how do you, how do you keep the tank full? I think there are two things. I think the one is having good friends and having a good support system and having people that, you know, I can kind of just hang out with and I don't have to talk about this. I can kind of just mm -hmm. talk about, um, I grew up outside of Pennsylvania, so I'm a big Eagles fan. I talk about sports, I talk about music. I can like have a really cheesy argument about like, what was the best like rap song released this week? I can like kind of unplug. And I think that's important for everyone, regardless of even if you work in this space, there's just so much happening outside on the daily that it's really important to just take a step back and mentally um, kind of decompress. Um, so I think I do that by just having good friends and a good support system. I think another thing is, and this happened, especially during the pandemic, the more that I, during the, you know, the really deep parts of the pandemic, when we were on a lot of lockdowns, I really, when I spent a lot of time reading about historical figures, I spent a lot of time reading about John Lewis. He spent a lot of time, reading about, you know, voting rights activists in the South, like Fannie Lou, Lou Hamer, you realize that this country, unfortunately, has always had moments like this, and it's been a lot worse. And if they can stand up and say that they're going to keep on fighting and they're going to make sure that, you know, people have the right to vote, that people have equal access to education, that, you know, Black communities have fair representation, then who am I to say that I'm tired and I can't take it. And that's something to me that I've always really found is motivating, that when it's so much worse, there are people that stood up. And today, things are so much better, but we still have so many issues. Um, so we just have to keep on going. That's so well said. So, so well said. What are you most looking forward to? Or like, what are you most optimistic about? I think I'm most optimistic about the younger generation, I think it's really, really powerful seeing young people across the country and the world stand up in the face of negativity, but also stand up in the face of oppression. In Virginia, 
when the governor tried to institute a ban on um, trans and LGBTQ kids being talked about in the country, in school, excuse me, watching those kids walk out of school and say, no, I'm not going to stand for this was incredible. Seeing young girls in the Middle East stand up and say, no, I'm not going to let my government oppress me. Seeing things like that really give me hope because sometimes I think looking at the day-to-day and seeing what's happening can be really disheartening. But knowing that there are always people and it's most of the time young people standing up lets me know that we're going in the right direction because one day those kids are going to be adults and they're going to be making the decisions. And I hope that they continue to use that same energy. I love it. You're so right. It's so, it really is watching, watching this younger generation take action the way that they have Hmm. when they get such a bad rap sometimes for being on the screens and, you know, passively on TikTok. It's, Mm -hmm. it's so invigorating because it gives me hope too. And I'm, and I'm, I'm a parent. You're you're Hmm. not yet, I'm assuming, but like, it's just, it's, I look at my own kids and I'm like, yeah, you guys are going to, you're inheriting a world or you're going to make a huge impact on the world to make a difference. Well, I think there's something about even, I mean, I have younger kids, but the, well, why is it that way? Kind of question, you know, it's like, okay, I see what you're saying, dad or mom, but why, why, why? And you know, it, there's kind of a less acceptance of the status quo, because I think the older you get, the more used to, well, that's the way that is. That's the way it's been done. Mm -hmm. And I I think, I just, I literally think it's, it's a function of age and, you know, we are getting older and you do (laughs) want to try to tap into that, like the dissatisfaction sometimes. Mm -hmm. So speaking of that, uh, Rathimi, if if you could have a conversation, if you could send an email, if you could send a tweet back to that young guy in the Friday Night Lights town who wanted to (laughs) be a rapper or basketball player, (laughs) what would you tell him? Well, you know, I would tell him that it's such a cheesy thing to say, but I think the one thing I'd say is just keep the faith. I think things will get better. Though things may seem bad now, things will get better. I think that's what I would say to that kid. Uh, Because I think a lot of times when we're young, we, and this is how I felt, you kind of feel like the whole world's against you. Um, You feel like everyone is kind of working against what you want to do or working against you in particular. But I think realizing a lot of times that that may be happening at the same time, I think you're projecting a little bit, I think is an important thing to remember as a really young person. So that's, that's what I would tell myself. I think just keep the faith and that things would, things will get better. That's great advice. And I'm sure he would have taken that and maybe not listened at the time, but yeah. <laughs> or or in a parallel timeline, he would have listened and then not listened to his parents and tried to become a rapper. And, right. You know, who knows True. what could have happened? Exactly. You know, I could have been, yeah. been a rapper, could have been an yeah. NBA player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, wrote to me, are you ready for speed round? I'm in. Let's go. Work at the confidence. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> What's one thing about you that no one expects? One thing about me that no one expects, um, it's the rapper fact, which we already talked about. Uh, but when I was a kid, I was in a choir and I sang for Barack and Michelle Obama. And it was a very cool experience. But that, I think, is a fact I always tell people. And they're like, you sang, you were in a kid's choir? And I was like, I was. Um, <laughs> so that was something that happened in high school. I sang for the Barack and Michelle at the White House in a Christmas concert. Yeah. <laughs> 
Nice. So cool. What's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Good question. Book or movie? One of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, the characters I relate to are Remember the Titans. I think it's a great movie with Denzel Washington. The reason why is because I think yes. it's about a group of young people that all come from different places and have all these different problems, personal problems. They're dealing with kind of the weight of themselves, but also the weight of history being black and white people in a town that's segregated, and yet they come together to achieve a common goal. So I think that's something that I relate to, I think, because the kind of internal struggle that a lot of the characters have, I really do uh, relate to. What is your favorite mom dish? Ooh, my favorite mom dish. I think... I think my mom makes a really good jello rice. It's a Nigerian kind of like rice and tomato stew. Yeah. With yeah. these really uh, spicy seasonings. So I like that a lot. And then she also makes a really good baked ziti. Those are probably my two mom foods. <laughs> you're, nice. you're the second guest we've had to mention their mom's jollof rice. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, it's a good dish. <laughs> but clearly your mom's is superior. Than of course. Oh, my I mean, mom's the best, you know. Yeah. <laughs> What is your least favorite food? My least favorite food. I weirdly used to like asparagus when I was growing up, but now I really don't like it. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I don't know if they've been adding something. It's been growing differently. It's just, it's not my thing. I don't like it. Um, not a big asparagus fan. It does have a, like, depending on how it's prepared, it has a, like a tinny aftertaste sometimes. Yeah, that's it. No, you're totally right. Yep. Yeah. I agree. Like, especially if it's boiled. I feel like if it's grilled, it's better, but I, I hear you. Mm-hmm. I hear you on that. Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview or speak to on a podcast? Who? good question. I'm really into uh, love basketball. I love sports, football. So um, talking to Giannis on the Bucks. Um, Milwaukee Bucks right now, I think that's someone I really like to talk to. One, because he's a phenomenal player, but two, his story of coming to America, being this young kid from Nigeria and Greece. He has such a rich background. I love to talk to someone like that. Have you seen his um, docu-series? Like a, it's not really a documentary. It's like an acted documentary. I have. So I, I did see it on uh, the Disney Plus one. I thought it was really good. Yeah. I thought- if I was younger and I watched that, I would have watched, that was a movie like, you know, sometimes when you're a kid, you have those movies that you play over and over again. Yep. <laughs> Mine was Spy Kids, but that would have been a movie that I would have like yeah. watched a hundred times. so yeah. good. My, my kids watched it and I was like, yeah, because they're really into sneakers. And like mm-hmm. that scene where you see his, that him and his brother were sharing the one pair of sneakers. Mm-hmm. I was like, see guys, look at that. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no. Like you guys exactly. have it good. You guys each have like at least two or three pairs of sneakers. And like, you know, he grew up literally not even having his own pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Ritimi, what does being a modern minority mean to you? Hmm. It's a really good question. I think being a modern minority is being a minority that is carrying the family story that they have. And then also, I think, at the same time, carrying what society perceives at them, but then also at the same time, carrying their own view of how they see themselves. And I think the reason why I say those three things is because I think as a minority, those three different 
parts play such a pivotal role in how you understand who you are. So I'd say those are kind of the three things that come to mind when I think of what a modern minority is. That's great. Well, Ratimi, this has just been a lot of fun to hear your journey and kind of there's so many similarities and differences and threads Mm -hmm. and experiences. And it's just so cool to kind of see how it's manifested into where your work is today. So I hope we can stay in touch and, and thank you for doing the work you do and we hope you keep doing it. No problem. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a great conversation. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Ramin Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply